0: to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask His guidance on our study. Father, we know that Your Word, the Bible, does not originate with man but was the result of a supernatural process whereby God the Holy Spirit moved upon the writers of Scripture in such a way that what they wrote was actually breathed out by you through them, guaranteeing that what they wrote, without violating their individual personalities, styles, backgrounds, culture, or any other human factor, that what they wrote would be guaranteed to be without error and infallible, representing perfectly and accurately your thinking and your instruction to us. Now, Father, as we submit ourselves to your word, we pray that you, you might help us to understand these things more clearly, that the verses and the topics that we discussed this morning will be very clear, and that God the Holy Spirit will enable us to uh, utilize, to see how to utilize and apply these, these principles in our day-to-day life, in our day-to-day thinking. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. This morning, we're going to continue our study in Proverbs. However, we're not going to be at any particular passage. If you wish to open your Bible to a passage, though, turn to Proverbs chapter 11, and we'll look at verses 7 through 11 very briefly as we begin. want to say something about the recent trip. has gone for two weeks. The first week, I was the morning Bible teacher. For Camp the topic was on the spiritual life, something that we've studied many times here at West Houston Bible Church, and I think it's something that many of the kids had heard before, but they needed to hear it again. They needed to hear it in a venue where it was brought down uh, to their level and given uh, instruction and focus for their uh, their individual spiritual lives. It was really a tremendous week. This is a great endeavor that has uh, taken place with this camp, and it is well worthy of our uh, financial support, our prayer support, and the support for our people. I was very encouraged to see that there were kids there from at least 10 or 12 different congregations, uh, most of whom are solid teaching churches. Uh, West Houston Bible Church, Grace Bible Church of, I think it's Rockwall, Uh, Preston City Bible Church, Front Range Bible Church, Grace Bible Church here in Houston, Pine Valley uh, Bible Church here in Houston, and I know there were quite a few others, the names of which I I don't remember. It was also uh, personally uh, gratifying to see a number of the, uh, the young people that were there who were counselors, and some who were not quite so young, but young at heart, who were giving of their time and their energy and their effort in order to uh, serve as counselors, help out in the uh, kitchen and with other uh, other service needs within the structure of the camp, It was good to see that it was It was kind of fun for me. two of the counselors, uh, actually their cousins, uh young man who 's going to seminary at uh, Tyndale, Matt Hagemeyer, I think we have him on our prayer list, if not he needs to be there, Matt Hagemeyer and his cousin Jenny, who's uh, the daughter of Hal Hagemeyer, with whom I serve on the Chafer Board, and it was great to see them because they, uh, uh, their, their dads and I grew up together in Sunday school, and we went to camp together from the time we were uh, nine years old and up. And so it was great to see that there's some generational progress and and handing down of the importance of the Word of God and serving the Lord in camp ministry and teaching kids the the word that 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 was just tremendous to see that also I had the privilege of baptizing Jenny, so that was uh, sort of another uh, generational thing i've always seemed to enjoy that even though the water temperature was just barely north of 32 degrees, Uh, (coughs) it was a fast baptism, at least as far as I was concerned. Got her, I didn't get my knees wet, tried to keep that very shallow, but uh, it was a great camp, the kids had a great time, a lot of solid Bible teaching, David Roseland, pastor of uh, Preston City Bible Church, taught in the evening on Bible study methods, and Mark Perkins, pastor of Front Range Bible Church, taught on prayer. In the afternoon, we had a couple of people here who were serving as counselors, counselors in training. And then we also had uh, a couple of uh, high school kids there. This is uh, really something, if you're, you're a parent, this is something you should think about for your kids as they reach the age where they can uh, go up to Camp and go to camp. This is a a tremendous ministry, and it's really good for a lot of the kids because we're not a large congregation. We have roughly 100 members, and we run anywhere from 80 to 100-plus on Sunday morning. and. a lot of times young people get the idea that, well, you know, there's only four or five of us, and we're weird, and we believe things nobody else believes. You know how it is with peer pressure and things like that when you're a teenager. You don't like being being unique or standing out in a the crowd. And there's nobody else like us out there. And then they go to a camp like this where there are 60 or 70 other kids from other congregations, all of whom believe and teach the same thing. And it's just a great, uh, great boost for them to recognize that they really aren't alone. It's not a, just a small group. We just happen to be smaller. Other groups tend to be smaller. And so that's a great encouragement, great reinforcement for them. It's also a good time uh, as young people where they face spiritual challenges and issues in their own life, uh, I, I, one analogy there is just the way I watch. Uh, it's good for me as a pastor to go because the kids see me in a different framework, a different environment, and I see them in a different environment. It's really great to see these kids get away from the parents and to see them function as, and let on their own because you see their personalities come out and uh, you see their 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 leadership come out and we had a couple two or three here that were uh that I've watched grow, grow up I've known a couple of them since they were small children and to see their leadership abilities and the way they functioned as counselors uh, was just tremendous to see see that uh, if the parents are around they tend to fall back into uh those familiar uh patterns that uh, we all have when we're around our parents and then when we get away from them our real personality and strengths come out and so that that was uh, very encouraging and a lot of these younger kids as they're growing up they've got to figure out what they believe what is true for them not just I go to church because that's where my parents drag me on Sunday morning but that's because this is what I really believe and somewhere between 15 and 25 uh, young people need to recognize that, that what they believe, what was given to them by their parents is not just something that's what they did as part of their parents' family, but is a commitment, a focus of their own life. And going to camp like this gives them that opportunity to, to just get away from all of the, oh, the Twitter stuff and the Facebook and all the electronics and all the, uh, uh, stuff related to the digital age and music and whatever it might be, television, and just focus on that which has eternal significance and really does make a difference in their individual life. A big challenge that all camps have is what happens after camp because camp is an artificial experience uh, because you're isolated from all of the other things that that go on in your life. And so often people go away to camp and they have sort of what's been described as a mountaintop experience. And then they go home and they fall flat on their face. And it's important to have a follow-up type of ministry. Pastor Mark Perkins has a Monday night follow-up online uh, Bible class for these kids. And the week, the Monday after the camp was over, there were over 50 kids that, that uh, uh, signed in or logged in and participated in that, in that Bible study. And so you need to pray for them, pray for that follow-up, pray for these kids. And some of them come from really distressed home backgrounds. And they're really dealing with a lot of uh, deficits. Everybody starts at a different point in their life and in their Christian life. And some people, unfortunately, uh, start with a greater deficit than others. And so it's a real challenge for them and we need to be in prayer for them but that was a a tremendous time to be involved with that ministry and that was really headed up by uh... Jeff Phipps and Jeff has done a tremendous job uh... organizing that and moving that down the line we spent another week on vacation which was also good just to relax a little bit and i appreciate the time off now let's get into our study here in proverbs one of the issues that comes up continuously in our thinking about the Christian life is the matter of personal righteousness, personal righteousness. Some of us have come from a background where to speak of personal righteousness or experiential righteousness has sometimes been thought to be legalistic. Oh, you're just emphasizing all those uh, uh, things that you have to do. That's just legalism. And that's a distortion of the understanding of Scripture. Uh, we ran into this a little bit at camp. Uh, some of the kids had the idea. Some of it came from some parents, it's a mixed idea. Uh, there's some partial truth there, like most erroneous things. Uh, but it's a common misconception. That is, if I'm filled with the Spirit, somehow the Spirit takes over my volition, and I will just somehow, by uh, by some sort of mystical power, want to do and do the right thing. And I don't really have to engage my volition to make hard choices difficult ethical and moral choices to implement the word of god in my life if i just take in the word of god under the power of god the holy spirit then the holy spirit is just going to automatically produce fruit in my life and automatically i will obey. And that distortion has been taught by many different organizations, Christian organizations over time, and uh, some of which have been Campus Crusade for Christ in the past, uh, Navigators in some of their literature, uh, a certain amount of, of uh, literature that comes out of Victorious Life teaching. And it's led to a lot of frustration for a lot of Christians because they, they've they sort of fallen into this trap of thinking that, well, if I just let go and let God, he'll just take over. And when I get in a difficult temptation environment, I won't uh, really have to uh, say no. That if I'm really filled with the Spirit, he'll say no for me. And somehow that never really happens, and this leads to a certain amount of frustration and failure uh, in the Christian life. We ran into that a little bit with uh, some situations at camp and some kids, and it's important to understand that the Holy Spirit strengthens us, but He he, he ain't going to make the decision for you. He's not going to take over your volition. He is simply going to give you a reminder of what the Word of God teaches and strengthen you so that... If you are willing to make the hard decision, it won't be quite as hard as if you didn't have the Holy Spirit like folks in the Old Testament. We still have to make those decisions. There are multiple volition points in our study of the Word of God. There's a decision to be in fellowship and to confess our sins. There's a decision to... Uh, Come to Bible class or to, uh, turn on the internet or whatever to study the word on a regular basis to open our Bibles. There is a decision to believe that what the Bible teaches is true. And when we do that under the power of God, the Holy Spirit, then the scripture says that becomes a full knowledge in our, in our soul, what the Greek word describes under the term epinosis. But then we have to apply it in real-life situations, and that involves making a decision to do what the Word of God says to do, even when we don't want to do it, even when we are extremely attracted to sinful options. uh, We have to make a decision not to do that, whether it is to commit some emotional sin, such as anger or bitterness, uh, whether it's to commit a sin of the tongue, such as gossip or slander, or forward that gossipy email on to everybody in your uh, email list, or whether it is to commit some o- overt sin. We have to choose to not do what the Scripture says not to do. That's not legalism. That's living the Christian life. It's what is called experiential righteousness, if we're going to use a theological term. All through the book of Proverbs, we have this this contrast this, between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous and the wicked. And it's easy for some people to think, oh, well, what is meant here by the righteous and the wicked are those who are positionally righteous and those who are positionally wicked. The trouble with that is it leads to that kind of pseudo-spirituality, of that mystical idea I talked about earlier, that somehow if I'm in fellowship, it's just going to automatically happen. No, we have to make those tough decisions. So today, I want to begin by looking at this topic of of righteousness. We see that it is contrasted between with righteousness and wickedness in Proverbs 11, starting in verse seven down through verse eleven. It goes throughout the entire book of Proverbs, but I will just look at this one one uh, four verse section here or five verse section because it emphasizes it. Uh, The writer says, when a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish, and the hope of the unjust perishes. Now, that word unjust is the negative form of righteousness, the unrighteous. In contrast, verse 8, the righteous is delivered from trouble. So this, we'll see, directly affects how we approach adversity. Adversity. If you are living on the basis of experiential righteousness, that is, as we do what the Word of God says to do, it it changes our options down the road. If you live on the basis of God's Word, then what you discover is not that your life is free from trouble or heartache or difficulty, but it becomes the the self-induced misery that comes from our own bad decisions becomes very restricted so that as we go through life, whereas we may experience trouble and adversity that comes from other quarters, we don't experience as much of the self-induced garbage that we bring upon ourselves. And so life becomes a lot better and a lot more enjoyable. And so the righteous, on the basis of wisdom, is delivered from trouble And it comes to the wicked instead. They heap misery upon themselves, in other words. Verse 9 says, The hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor. That's an example of the wicked using slander to assault his neighbor. But through knowledge, that is knowledge of the word of God, the righteous will be delivered. When it goes well with the righteous, verse 10 says, the city rejoices. In other words, when the righteous, because he is living in obedience to God's word, experiences the temporal blessing that comes as a result of obedience, this has various consequences that come with it. So that uh, in association with the believer who's walking on the basis of wisdom and is living a righteous life, those around the believer are blessed by association. The city or the nation rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there's jubilation. That is, when the wicked disappears, when they die, there's jubilation because they have brought misery into everybody's life around them. Verse 11 says, By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted, and it is, but it is overthrown by the mouth of the of the wicked now as we look at these verses we see that there's this contrast between the righteous and the wicked and the righteous is the person in the context of of proverbs is the person who is living out the ba- living on the basis of wisdom he is learning the word of god he's living his life in fear of the lord and as a result of that his life is blessed by god Not because of his personal righteousness, but because of his spiritual growth and the capacity that has been developed. We'll get into some of these details as we go through this uh, this study. But this concept of righteousness is one that we have to understand. So today we're going to get into sort of an introduction in the first two points on the doctrine of righteousness, looking at the meaning of righteousness. And then next time we'll come back and look at the experiential aspect in more detail. The first point is simply to define the concept of righteousness. What does it mean to be righteous? Now the basic idea in the Hebrew word tzedek, that's spelled T Z E D E Q T Z E D E Q tzedek. The basic meaning of that is to be straight. That's its sort of core semantic idea is to be straight, and it indicates a norm or a standard. It emphasizes that we are to conform or it indicates activity that conforms to a specific norm or a standard in many cases this is an ethical or moral standard and of course in the scripture it refers to a spiritual standard that has its ultimate reference point in terms of the character of God psalm 145:17 says that the lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. And I want you to pay attention to that synonymous parallelism there. The first line says that the Lord is righteous in all his ways. Parallel to that, he's holy in all his works. Holiness is juxtaposed or parallel to righteous. So that holy, a word that is often misunderstood today in Uh, religious, Christian religious context, because it's often been abused. It's one of those words that just becomes uh, nebulous for most people due to its frequency of use. I think righteousness does to some degree, but I think it's a little more precise. Holy is a term that includes righteousness, and here it's used as a synonym, righteous means that God is perfectly just. He is perfectly right or correct in all that he does. This is embedded in his character. Now, we live in a world today where we have lost sight of any sort of external uh, absolute standard for right and wrong. Right and wrong is often portrayed today as being culturally determined. If you are from an African culture, then you have one set of values. If you are from an Asian culture, you have another set of values. If you are from a pagan uh, witchcraft-type background, you have another set of values. If you're from a secular uh, humanistic background, you have another set of values. And every value is equal. It doesn't matter who you are, unless, of course, you violate some sort of social norm, and those change from generation to generation. If you go back 150 years in this country, then there were a number of of social sins you just didn't want to be uh, guilty of in in, uh, some quarters, and today they're defined differently. If you want to understand what some of these egregious social norms are, Uh, It's eating a diet with too much fat in it or drinking a a big gulp drink that has too much sugar in it, according to some people, or eating uh, too much fat in your diet or whatever it is. In other quarters, it's uh, smoking. In other quarters, it's uh, uh, giving a a spanking, a well-deserved Uh, legitimate spanking to your children, and these are just some of the social sins that uh, are given today. If you make a comment that in any way, shape, or form may indicate that it has something to do with a person's ethnic background, then you have committed one of the most egregious sins possible. And yet everybody, if you've listened to some of the discussions on the radio recently or television, no matter what background a person comes from, everybody admits that, well, it seems like everybody has certain prejudices and biases and we just can't act on them. See, the problem with the discussion is nobody understands the sin nature. The modern culture in America starts from the uh, accepting the idea that everybody's basically good, and if we can just reform everybody, we can have a perfect society and perfect culture. Uh, this is completely false. Uh, the scripture teaches that all are sin- uh, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory or the essence of God. We're all failures. That doesn't mean we justify our failure. That doesn't mean we, uh, come along and rationalize our failure or in some sort of licentious mentality say that, well, Jesus paid for our sins, so what the hey? We're just gonna do whatever, whatever we want to do. Why go through the struggle of, of obeying Scripture? Uh, this is not a testimony to some sort of justification for any of these social sins, but we have to recognize the mentality that produces this whole politically correct social sin uh, framework, and that is uh, this sort of idealism that we can have a utopic environment and we can produce perfection. It can't happen, it won't happen, and the purveyors of uh, social utopianism today are leading us down a path of destruction because this is the height of human arrogance, and it is so pervasive today in politics and in um, higher education that it is—it's uh, impossible for any of us to escape it. it you, you, we have policies in most uh, companies and businesses that uh, where, where you might work that are based upon this kind of, uh, of false. False thinking simply because they don't want to have to, have to run, they don't want to run afoul of the uh, politically correct police or the social police who, who want to slap everybody for, uh, for any type of, of social sin. Except the trouble is most of these social sins are never even mentioned in the scripture, are never even emphasized. They're merely manifestations of greater sins, uh, such as arrogance and, uh, uh, self-absorption, and many other many other things. Once you get away from the objective uh, framework for understanding righteousness, then you're left in just a morass of subjectivity. Now, what do I mean by subjectivity? Subjectivity is simply the idea that there's no objective external standard of right or wrong, but that the, the standard for right or wrong is what I feel, what I think, what I come up with from my own experience. And so you then subdivide or balkanize a culture into all these different minorities, each one of which has their own values. But even then, even though we have done that, we still come along with with some sort of externally acceptable standard that one group tries to impose upon another. And this, in America, is a violation of the First Amendment, which guarantees freedom from any kind of government interference. But this isn't government interference, it's social. But now we see, if you just watch the news the last couple of days, all of these people who are being riled up, by a, a lot of demagogues in relation to this uh, court case dealing with uh, uh, George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin, that what we see is that people are being uh, being stirred up and there's one group through intimidation and through through the threat of social chaos is trying to impose their view on everybody else. It's a breakdown of law and order and because there's a loss of absolutes whereas the Bible teaches that righteousness refers to an external absolute standard that man is to uh, is to conform with. Now the word refers to this concept of God's righteousness, his absolute perfection in all things. Now the second point in understanding our Doctrine or the biblical teaching on righteousness is that there are four categories of righteousness, and that's difficult for us to distinguish sometimes as we read the Word of God. It's not strange that we have different meanings to the same word. There are many different words that we use in English that have multiple meanings. Uh, Take, for example, the word trunk. Trunk can describe the nose of an elephant. Trunk can describe a large box wherein people put their uh, clothing and belongings sometimes and use it for travel trunk can also refer to a something like a trunk line which is the baseline of a of telephone or electricity or something like that that divides up later on it can also refer to uh the compartment on the rear of an automobile uh, wherein we pack various uh various things and so as we read, a, you can read a paragraph where somebody uses the word trunk three or four different ways, and because of your knowledge of the English language, you, your brain automatically sifts those different meanings, and you recognize that in one sentence, trunk means one thing, and in the next sentence, it means something else, and in the next sentence, it means something else. We do that automatically. Righteousness is no different. If we study the Word of God, we can discern four different types of righteousness. And so let's go through them briefly. The first is the category of what I call absolute righteousness. These are 4 subpoints to the second point, four categories of righteousness. Absolute righteousness describes the character of God. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, you might turn with me there. Uh, briefly. We're going to hit the context of a couple of these different passages, and so it's important to look at that. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32.4 comes at the end of Moses parting words to the Israelites just before he is taken to be with the Lord, and it is actually a hymn. It is actually a song and there's a lot we could say about that but it emphasizes the fact that singing is not something trivial or trite in the scripture but it expresses profound deep reflection upon the truth of God's word. In Isaiah, I mean in Deuteronomy 32:4 we read, "He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of truth and without injustice." Righteous and upright is he. So Moses, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, uses a number of synonyms here to emphasize the righteousness of God. The context actually begins in the last verse of of chapter 31. Deuteronomy 31.30 says, Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this what this song this was a song that they were to learn and to sing down through the ages that they might be reminded of God's grace and they might be reminded of God's character and so he calls upon the heavens and the earth as witnesses. The heavens are are impersonal. The earth is impersonal. So he's not talking about the literal stars in the heavens or the literal ground of the earth. He's speaking about the inhabitants. Scripture teaches that something is confirmed by two witnesses. The two witnesses that he's calling upon here, and is in other places in Deuteronomy, uh, refers to the inhabitants of the heavens. That would be the angelic armies and the inhabitants of the earth. So he says, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth. So by using this contrast between heavens and earth, he's talking about all of the sentient or intelligent beings that God has created, both the angelic as well as the human. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech. Distill as the dew, as rain drops upon the, on the tender herb, and as showers on the grass, For I proclaim the name of the Lord, and here we must understand that this concept of the name is not simply a label affixed to someone, but reflects its internal character. So he's saying, I proclaim the character of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, and I ascribed greatness to Eloheinu, our God. And then he defines the area of God's essence that he is speaking about. He is the rock. That indicates his eternal stability. He is unshakable. He never changes. His work, that is, that which God performs, is perfect. It is uh, without flaw, for all of his ways are mishpat, justice. So that which God performs defines what justice is. Justice isn't defined by the creature in terms of his uh, experience or his relation with others. Uh, justice is defined by the character of God. He is a God of truth and without injustice. So we often hear people say, well, God isn't fair. God isn't just if he allows this to happen. Uh, God isn't doing the right thing. And these little small-minded creatures who think that somehow their speck of knowledge in contrast to the e- e- infinite, eternal knowledge of God allows them to evaluate uh, the performance of God, whereas God in His absolute character defines what righteousness is. He's righteous and upright. The word righteous there is, is, uh, yeah, is, uh, a word "setic," and the word upright is the word yasher, which means straight, or in line or conforming to an external standard. Something is straight because it aligns with an external standard of what, what straight or righteous is. So we see that God is spoken of as being uh, absolute righteousness. Second passage I want to look at is in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 6. I recognize that for many people, 2 Chronicles is one of those books that is least read. It comes between 2 uh, Kings and Ezra. So we have 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, verse 12, and this refers to an incident of, of uh, disobedience in the life of Israel. 2 Chronicles, chapter 12. The key verse is verse 6. So the leaders of Israel and the king humbled themselves and they said, Yahweh, referring to the covenant, that's the personal name of the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh is righteous. Now the context here is a time right after the breakup of Israel into the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes of the north, and the southern kingdom, the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, which became the kingdom of Judah. The ruler in the north was Rehoboam, who had led a tax revolt against, or excuse me, the, the um, leader in the north was Jeroboam, who had led a tax revolt against Rehoboam, the king of the south, the son of Solomon, because he was con- he was not only continuing the harsh... Uh, taxa- taxation policies of his father Solomon but he was going to increase them and so this is a time which is bringing uh, where God is announcing uh, a judgment upon Rehoboam because of his uh, sin and failure to follow the law of the Lord verse uh, 1 says now it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself that he forsook or that he violated, disobeyed, ignored the law of the Lord. Now, the Hebrew word there for law is is uh, Torah. And Torah has come to be used so many times to refer to the concept of law that we often miss its core meaning. And I think many times it's it may be mistranslated as law when it is actually has the connotation of instruction. That's the core meaning of the word Torah. The law was to instruct the Jews how to live as a godly people. So he has abandoned or ignored the instruction of the Lord through the uh, Torah, the, the law given to Moses, and all Israel along with him. And it happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, that Shishak, who is an Egyptian pharaoh, uh, invaded Judah from the south and comes against Jerusalem, brings a siege against Jerusalem. Why Why did this happen? Because they had transgressed the Lord. And God made it very clear in Leviticus 26 that one of the results of disobedience to the law would be that a country would go through, that Israel would go through military defeat. And so they are uh, they're coming under military assault from foreign powers because they had transgressed that term means to violate the law of the law itself to transgress a com- commandment or violate a commandment against the Lord. And Shishak has a huge army, which is uh, laid out in verse 3 and verse 4. We're told that he took the fortified cities of Judah and came to Jerusalem. So they're under, uh, they've been defeated again and again. And now Jerusalem itself is under assault. Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah, they're going to hear the direct word of God, and they're gathered together, and the Lord says, thus says the Lord, you have forsaken me, or abandoned me, or ignored me, therefore I also have left you in the hand of Shishak. What's the result? The leaders of Israel responded correctly. And the king humbled themselves and they said, the Lord is righteous. How many times when we come under divine discipline, do we whine and moan and God's not being fair, rather than humbling ourselves and saying, this is a righteous judgment of God. He's doing the right thing. I'm guilty of violating him, his standards, and therefore uh, he's correct in bringing me under discipline. So the Lord... Minimizes the punishment in verse 7. When the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah saying, They have humbled themselves, therefore I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. In other words, God often does this. We confess our sins. God uh, may remove the punishment he may minimize the punishment or he may simply allow the punishment to continue at the same level of intensity here he reduces it to some degree and grants them uh, some deliverance from uh from shishak the point is that in their humbling themselves they recognize the righteousness the character of god A third passage I want to look at in understanding this concept of absolute righteousness is in Psalm 11. Psalm 11, verse 7. Again, we'll look at the context here so we understand what is being said. Psalm 11, verse 7 says, For the Lord, Yahweh again, for the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright, that is, Yasher, the one who walks in conformity to his instruction, to Torah, uh, the one who walks in conformity to righteousness. But right now we're just looking at this absolute standard. Yahweh is righteous, we understand. This is part of his essence, his character. He defines that standard of righteousness. Without an external standard of right and wrong, We can't even talk about right and wrong because I may talk to one person on this side of the congregation and apart from God, they think one thing's right and another thing's wrong. And I talk to somebody on the other side of the room, they think, no, it's just the opposite. This is right. This is wrong. How can you even talk about the concept of right or wrong if you don't believe in an external reference point? and this is a problem with relativism is when you deny an external reference point you can't even use the terms right and wrong and yet how many people look out on different situations in our culture and say well X is right or Y is wrong and yet they don't they're, they're so immersed in relativism they don't even recognize that they don't have the right to talk about right and wrong because they deny the even, even the existence of an absolute Whereby those terms can conform, and so this is the inherent inherent uh, uh, contradiction with, with all of this uh, social, uh, you know, political correctness and multiculturalism, and uh, that dominates our culture today. Psalm 11 is a great psalm. You got to memorize this psalm. It's a tremendous psalm emphasizing. Uh, the trust in the Lord because he is righteous. The writer, David, uh, we don't know the circumstances, says in, in verse 1, In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? In other words, he's facing a, a, a situation of adversity, and the temptation is to run and hide somewhere. And he says, uh, and the person who is, is tempting him says, well, you need to just get away from everything, flee, run away from the problem. And then it's described as the wicked are bending their bow, they make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. And then David is saying, if the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? Now, that is a great application there, I think, to any nation or any individual. If the foundation of the word of God is destroyed, then there's not much that the righteous can do. And we live in the midst of a collapse of a culture or collapse of a civilization, which is our situation today. The foundations have been destroyed. The foundations of truth, the foundations of the Word of God in our culture have been, uh, have been destroyed through the last 150 years of uh, the influence of secularism, atheism, humanism, evolutionism, uh, sociology, psychology, all forms of relativistic thought, and so once the foundations are are destroyed, it becomes extremely difficult for the righteous to live and to apply the Word of God, uh, because we become marginalized, ostracized, and rejected, and we become defined as the enemy of the nation. Uh, people who are holding to absolutes will always. Uh, be hated by the people who hold to relative values because we stand as a source of conviction to their conscience. But we must be reminded of the absolute circumstances of God. He is in his holy temple, verse 4. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, and the eyes of God always a reference to his knowledge. So eyes and eyelids here are used metaphorically to refer to the knowledge of God, uh, he has, he's not unaware of what's going on. He's, uh, his omniscience has understood the circumstances from eternity past. And he is uh, testing the sons of men, mankind. This is a test for humanity, whether they will obey or disobey God. And the Lord also, verse 5, tests the righteous to see if we will be obedient to him in the midst of adversity. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul, that is God. Hates. That is, he rejects them. Uh, verse six. Upon the wicked he will rain coals. Ultimately there will be justice and God will bring judgment upon the wicked. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Again, a reference to their life. Why can we say this? Because Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness and his countenance beholds the upright. God is the one who defends us. So as we look at just the beginning of our study here on righteousness, we have to understand this first category that's as far as we could get this morning is that God's character is the absolute standard of what is right and what is wrong. So when we get through this study, we see from Proverbs that the righteous is the one who lives his life in conformity and obedience to the character of God, and ultimately that means we live in conformity to his instruction uh, from his word. The result of that is what the writer of Proverbs will emphasize. If we want to have a rich, full life, if you want to have the blessing of God, if you want to experience all that God has for you, then it is based upon living your life on the basis of God's word, which presupposes that you know God's word and which calls upon each of us to make sure that the knowledge of God's word, study of God's word, is a high priority in our life. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together this morning and to reflect upon your righteousness, that you are the standard of absolute right and good and justice in the universe. Therefore, to know what is right and what is wrong, we must know who you are. We must know how you have revealed yourself in your word, and we must understand the instruction of your word. Father, we pray that we might be responsive to the challenge of your word, that we might uh, know it, that we might learn it, that we might understand that it is to shape every thought in our minds and that we are to conform our entire lives to what you have uh, revealed to us in the instruction of your word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their uh, salvation or eternal destiny, that as we study these things, that will become clear to them, that you have a righteous standard and no one can uh, come into your presence without righteousness. You love righteousness as we we have just read in Psalm 11. And we understand that that the only way in which we can be righteous is not by uh, what we do, but because of what you have given us through our faith in Jesus Christ. That once we trust in him, your righteousness is given to us, credited to us, so that we might have eternal life. Father, we pray that anyone here who has never trusted in Christ would come to understand the, the importance of this, and God the Holy Spirit would make this clear, for this is the promise from John chapter 16, that, that the Holy Spirit will convict them of righteousness, and their need for righteousness. And the only way to have righteousness is to be given it by you. Father, we pray that you might challenge each of us with this study, that we might choose the righteous path rather than the wicked path, and that therein you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.